Is God keeping you single? That's my topic for the day. As I'm sure you know by now, I am very much opposed to the gift of singleness, a doctrine based on what I believe is a misinterpretation of 1 Corinthians 7.7. At the core of this doctrine is the belief that you, single Christians, would rather be married but have not found a way to get married. You must come to terms with the fact that God has determined your present singleness. He has given you the gift, the gift of singleness. God has given you singleness now and perhaps forever because he wants you to be specially devoted to him. As holy and noble as those statements sound, I believe they're false and not only false, but extremely damaging. Indeed, I believe the gift of singleness doctrine is intended to be damaging, not by the well-meaning people who preach it, but by Satan who constructed it and sneaked it into the church undetected. So now that I've thrown down the gauntlet, let me explain what I mean. In Genesis 2, God created marriage, instituting it immediately after forming the man and the woman. Marriage was not simply an afterthought on God's part. He deliberately created marriage, and not just for his own people, but for all of humanity. The responsibilities and benefits of marriage and family have been enjoyed for centuries in every continent and civilization on this earth. Along with work, which was also established at the beginning, Genesis 1, 27-28, describes it as subduing the earth, marriage and family has been a key contributor to human flourishing. Marriage is the only place for lawful, God-ordained sexual expression, and it provides a safe arena in which children can be nurtured. Again, this is true both for Christians and non-Christians alike. Many of the serious societal problems that plague our country today can be traced back to the breakdown of marriage and family. But for the Christian, marriage takes on an even more important spiritual significance. In Ephesians 5, the Apostle Paul reveals the mystery that the marriage of a man and a woman is a symbol of Christ and his church. Christian marriage, then, is a testimony to the world, not just of the goodness of God's creation of the man and the woman, but of the relationship between the Savior and his redeemed bride. Now, that doesn't mean everyone has to get married. Matthew 19, 10 through 12, and 1 Corinthians 7, 32 through 35 clearly state that if an unbeliever says this, hey, I know I have the right to marry, but I choose to set that right aside and remain single to devote myself to the ministry of the Lord. I don't want to be distracted from kingdom work by the care of a spouse and children. This decision pleases the Lord. The Bible is clear about that. And this is what the gift of singleness doctrine pretends to be about. In reality, though, The gift of singleness doctrine unbiblically lumps all singles, those who choose to be single for the kingdom, and those who are simply in the condition of being single, into the same category of being called to singleness. It's true, God is very pleased with the believer's choice to remain unmarried for the sake of the kingdom, but the Bible does not state anywhere, not in 1 Corinthians 7, not in Matthew 19, not anywhere, that God imposes singleness on anyone. Now, few Christians would disagree that for the past 50 years, Satan has engaged in a relentless, multi-pronged assault on the institution of marriage. Starting with the sexual revolution, which plucked sex out of the rightful context of marriage, then no-fault divorce, widespread cohabitation, friends with benefits, gay marriage, and Satan's attack continues to this day as even the very genders of male and female have been challenged. On the heels of all this, Our society now sees marriage as a quaint, outdated arrangement that has long since lost its relevance. Marriage is seen as completely unnecessary, 
But if it's desired, we now have a plethora of options. It is one of Satan's greatest desires to destroy marriage, and sadly, he appears to have succeeded in doing that in our society. Satan is also seeking to destroy marriage in the church as well. I believe the gift of singleness is another satanic attack, but unlike his obvious wholesale denigration of marriage in the world, Satan has wrapped the gift of singleness doctrine in a lot of holy-sounding jargon and Christianese. If you've been single in the church for any length of time, you have certainly heard this statement. Singleness is a gift for as long as you have it. I wish I'd had the forethought to charge a dollar to every person who said that to me. Singleness is a gift for as long as you have it. If I collected all those dollars and invested them in no-load mutual funds, I, I could be a millionaire by now. Oh well, that's a missed opportunity. The fact is, singleness is not a gift at any point in time. Think of it this way. Before you got your current job, you were unemployed. Being unemployed affords you a lot more free time. Does that mean being unemployed is a gift? No, it's just a status, a condition. Unemployed is just what you were before you got the job. Before you bought a house, you were an apartment dweller. Is being an apartment dweller a gift? No, it's just what you were before you bought the house. Singleness is just a condition. There is nothing inherently gifted about it. When you elevate singleness to a gift, when you believe it's sacred and super holy, you tend to unnaturally prolong it, which causes lots of problems. Sexual temptation for one but also digging deep grooves in your solitary life that are difficult to climb out of, becoming weird and quirky since you don't have anyone to balance you out, which makes merging your life with someone else in marriage harder and harder as the single years go on. The statement, singleness is a gift for as long as you have it, comes from the false notion that God has predetermined seasons of singleness for every person. According to this thinking, God has a unique Prepackaged season of singleness for every individual, some lasting for five years, others for 15 years, others for 25 years, and some for a lifetime. These predestined seasons of singleness are not found in the scriptures anywhere. In fact, at the time the Bible was written, and even for centuries after, our modern notion of adult singleness was non existent. In Bible times and in generations before us, there weren't unmarried adults roaming around for extended periods of time, backpacking through Europe, volunteering for Habitat for Humanity, and playing Ultimate Frisbee. That's an American 21st century invention. It used to be that growing up meant getting married and starting a family. So there's no way the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 7 was talking about varying seasons of singleness centuries before that was even a thing. No, the gift Paul is referring to is a spirit-enabled ability to be celibate for life. That's why it's called a gift. It's not something any person can simply default to. So back to our original question, is God keeping you single? I think in most cases the answer is no. It's not God who wants to stop singles from marrying. It's Satan. But if God isn't keeping Christians undesirably single late into their 30s, 40s, 50s, and beyond— then what is keeping them there? What's causing us to remain single when we desire to be married? I think in most cases, we're hindering ourselves. We are unwittingly causing our own extended, prolonged, seemingly never-ending singleness. I want to dive into these issues, first at a high level, then get into the specifics for men and women. One of the biggest obstacles to marriage in modern American society 
is the universal demand that we must be madly in love with the person before we can marry them. Now, I know that sounds crazy. I'm not suggesting that we should marry a person we hate. But believe it or not, for centuries before our time, falling in love was not considered a requirement for marriage. Marriages were often arranged, usually by parents. Now, don't hyperventilate. I'm not calling for the return of arranged marriages. That system would not work in our independent society. But back in ancient times when marriages were arranged, people understood something very critical about marriage that our society today has sadly forgotten. What makes marriage good, fulfilling, satisfying, and enduring has more to do with how God brilliantly designed marriage to work than the actual person we marry. Marriage is designed to draw a man and woman together and increasingly more in love as the years go by. The most important thing then, when it comes to finding a spouse, is finding someone suitable, someone who shares values most important to us. There is nothing more important to a Christian than Christ Jesus. So that means we must marry a fellow believer. What's wrong with falling in love? Well, as it turns out, it doesn't mean all that much. The feelings associated with falling in love are often little more than physical attraction and the belief that the person is, quote, the one. Our own personalized fantasy of the perfect mate. But there is no one. People are just who they are, a mix of some good traits and some bad. Furthermore, the Bible doesn't speak of the one, that one perfect person who will fulfill all our hopes, dreams, and expectations. Such a person honestly doesn't exist. As Christians, we should have a firmly biblical view of marriage. And I believe having that solid Christ-like view of marriage will make marriage easier to obtain. And once you decide on a person and marry them, God expects you to keep that covenant of marriage. That person is the one because you are committed to staying married to them. Let me explain it this way. Think of marriage as a delicious cup of cappuccino. Marriage is the rich coffee at the bottom and falling in love is that frothy, foamy milk at the top. The froth is very pleasant, but airy, fleeting, and with little substance. If you talk to couples who have been married for more than two or three years, they will tell you a lot of the initial feelings they had about their spouse evaporated after marriage, much like the foam on the top of a cappuccino. Those initial feelings evaporated after they came to know the real person they married, not just the dream person they thought they married. The frothy, falling-in-love feelings had now been replaced with coffee, a deeper, more mature, more compassionate, less selfish, and more flavorful love. This is why we can't look to the world to define what marital love truly is, because the world has it backwards. It's full of froth chasers, people in love with feelings of infatuation, who are forever chasing those initial feelings, continually using and climbing over partners, looking for froth that last. But froth, by its very nature, doesn't last. As Christians, we mustn't see people that way, as mere objects to satisfy our every whim. Having a firmly biblical, charitable, sacrificial, and much more pragmatic understanding of marriage will hopefully make it easier to marry. It will likely reveal many potential spouses we would have otherwise overlooked. My pastor once said, Our world thinks way too little of and way too much of marriage. So very true. Our society doesn't think marriage is at all worth preparing for and working towards. If you stumble into marriage, that's fine. 
but it's really not worth the hassle. Sadly, that low view of marriage has seeped into the church as well. But our society thinks too much of marriage when it expects it to be a status where all your dreams come true. Marriage is good and for most people necessary, but it was never intended to be our God. Now that's sort of a helicopter view of the problems that keep people from getting married. And again, these are problems that stem from our own worldly view of marriage. They aren't God's fault. Now I want to dig even deeper, looking at more specific sins that work as obstacles to marriage for both men and women. These obstacles come in the form of two common sins, often committed by both single men and women. These are the sins of pride and sloth. Pride and sloth. In today's church, most of the blame for the increase in extended singleness is often leveled at the men. Many a pastor has stood in the pulpit and harangued that men need to get up off their duffs and pursue a woman for marriage. But I think women share as much blame for the problem of extended singleness as men. We women sin too, and often those sins are keeping us single. So I'm going to start this section by talking about what the women are doing, and then I'll move on to the men. We women commit the sin of pride when we maintain impossible standards for any potential suitor. It seems for some women, the longer they are single, the longer their list of must-haves becomes. They want them to have the spiritual maturity of a 60-year-old elder, but to also have a perfectly chiseled physique from hitting the gym three times a day. Also a natural leader and an ambitious corporate climber vying for the brass ring, but also a Bible scholar who knows both Hebrew and Greek and can be her own personal pastor. Also a lumberjack using his muscles to chop down wood for the fireplace, but also a sensitive man who can spend hours cuddling kittens. No man can have all these characteristics except the God-man, Jesus Christ, and no earthly woman is going to marry Jesus Christ. It's good to have standards. As a Christian woman, you shouldn't marry just anyone, but it's important to know the difference between godly requirements and your own personal preferences. Godly requirements are non-negotiable. He must be a blood-bought believer who seeks to glorify the Lord in all he does. Anything beyond that falls into the category of personal preferences. And although they're fine to have, don't make them the hill you're willing to die on. It may be God's desire to sanctify you by humbling you and teaching you to love a man who doesn't meet all your personal preferences. Along these same lines, hold loosely the characteristics you consider to be your type. You may say, my type has this color eyes, this color hair, is this tall, and has this kind of personality. But God has not obligated himself to send you your type. Be open to the godly men. Be open to the godly men the Lord may providentially cross your path. Don't run the risk of bypassing marriage altogether by holding out for your type. Be careful also comparing the single men you come across to the married men you see at at your church. The elders, the deacons, the pastors, the group leaders, and the ushers. Though you definitely want a man who is on a holy trajectory, one who is faithfully plugged into a solid church and who studies his Bible and seeks to live it out in in his own life, expecting a single man to be like the married men you admire is unfair. That's because God designed marriage to be part of the maturing process for men. Compared to the married men around them, single men can sometimes appear shiftless, awkward, and maybe even a little odd. 
But the married men you see that are so confident, ambitious, and purposeful probably were just as odd and goofy as the single men before they married. God has used the demands and rigors of marriage and family to form them into the respectable men they are today. So give single men a chance. Don't judge them too harshly because they don't have the spiritual benefits that come with marriage. And speaking of judging, I was reading online about a single Christian woman over 30 who said she wouldn't even consider marrying a man who had ever looked at pornography. Now, pornography is a particularly enslaving sin, and you definitely don't want to marry a man who continually, continually sins in that area. But finding a man who has never, ever looked at pornography even once is like looking for a leprechaun. That's a tall order. But even beyond that, such a man is prideful, uncharitable, and I would say maybe even sinful. If a man has struggled with pornography in the past or any entangling sin, but has confessed it, repented of it, turned away from it, and mortified it, the Lord promises to cleanse him from that sin, 1 John 1, 9, and to remember his sins no more, Hebrews eight twelve. If a Lord will not hold a man's past sins against him, who are you, single Christian woman, to demand that your future husband be sinless, especially considering the fact that your past isn't sinless either? If you examine this type of demand, you'll see it really has more to do with pride than holiness the prideful desire to have a perfect marriage or an enviable sex life. So those are some of the obstacles to marriage for women related to the sin of pride. Now on to the sin of sloth in women. Sloth is a sin that I commit the most in my approach to marriage. I'm ashamed to admit it, but in the many years I have remained single, I have regrettably let myself go. I've gained lots of weight from eating unhealthy and not exercising, and I have neglected my appearance. Although it's rarely talked about, sloth in this area is sinful. It's not Christ who compelled me to polish off those buckets of KFC. I did that on my own. And now I'm reaping the consequences of my sin, remaining undesirably single for years. Recently, I've admitted these sins and confessed them to the Lord and and other fellow believers. I'm trying to turn away from them every day. I want to be attracted to a potential spouse, and so I have to confront what is often the elephant in the room no one wants to acknowledge. I think one of the reasons the gift of singleness doctrine is so appealing to people is because it's much easier to tell long-term single women like me that they're unmarried because of God than to be honest and tell them their slovenly appearance may be a significant reason they've never gotten a marriage proposal. I know from experience that this sin is a particularly hard one to face. Our American culture puts such an idolatrous emphasis on physical beauty that we can sometimes convince ourselves that frumpiness is next to godliness, but it's not. Our God is the creator of beauty, and he has designed the woman to display it and created the man to appreciate it. And don't make the mistake that that means you have to look like a supermodel or a movie star. God has given you the unique look that you have, and it is being a good steward to treat your body in such a way that those lovely features God gave you are beautifully displayed. So those are how the sins of pride and sloth can be obstacles to marriage for women. As promised, I am now going to dive into how those same sins of pride and sloth can keep single men from getting married. This section is harder for me because I've never been a man. I honestly don't know all that's going on in the mind of of the typical Christian man. 
I'm much more familiar with the way women tend to think. And so I'm mostly aware of the sins men commit in the approach to marriage by observation. When it comes to the sin of pride, I'm sure men have similar issues as women. Expecting Miss America or a mate possessing the flawless beauty displayed on airbrushed magazine covers. I'm sure, similar to women, they might get hung up on expecting God to provide a woman who is their preferred type. But the sin I see most in single Christian men today is the sin of sloth. Let's face it, it's a fact. If men don't act, if they don't look for wives, pursue women who interest them, and propose to them, marriages don't happen. God designed men to be the initiators on the road to marriage, women the responders. One of the most damaging consequences of the false gift of singleness is that it has convinced many single Christian men that God has given them singleness now and God will miraculously give them marriage when and if he decides to. But God has already said he has designed the man to be the actor in marriage. In Genesis 2.24, God said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife. Leaving and cleaving are action verbs that indicate a lot of intentional effort by the man. He is to leave, meaning he is to become a stable, independent person in his own right, separate from his parents, and to cleave, to do the work it takes to obtain a wife. I'm straying a little off topic, but Genesis 2.24 also discloses that God created the marriage state for everyone. He doesn't dispense it to some people while denying it to others. Again, remember the gift is an ability. The Spirit-enabled ability to choose celibacy over marriage for the sake of the kingdom. It is not a condition. That's the only interpretation of 1 Corinthians 7-7 that makes any sense and doesn't contradict any other Bible passages. If marriage was something we had to wait for God to bestow on us, Genesis 2-24 would read, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and shall cleave to his wife if I have given him the gift of marriage. If I have given him the gift of singleness, a man shall leave his father and mother and search for his wife and never find her. Then when he's still unmarried at 50, he will know that I gave him the gift of singleness. So back to men. The gift of singleness teaching makes men think it's holier to sit and do nothing than moving deliberately and purposefully towards marriage. It makes men passive and unassertive. I'm just waiting on the Lord, is how they often put it. I think at the heart of this problem is a misunderstanding of the sovereignty of God. Single Christian men will often think, Well, God is sovereign, so if God wants me to be married, He'll just make it happen. And then I suppose they wait for God to drop a woman through the roof of their house. Some guys are honestly mixed up too and think, When it comes to marriage, which part do I play and which part does God play? Should I act or should I wait for God to act? But that's a wrong understanding of sovereignty. God's sovereignty is not either or. Either you act or God acts. It's not either or, it's both and. Let me explain it this way. If you're sitting on the couch and then get up and walk to the kitchen and get a cold glass of water, did you do that or did God do that? The answer is yes. You acted and God also ordained you to act. You acted and God gave you the power to act. It was both your will and action and God's sovereign will. As a Christian man who desires marriage, don't sit and wait for God's sovereignty to kick in and do something. That's not how sovereignty works. And be honest with yourself. Are you using the excuse of waiting on the Lord 
to hide your own feelings of fear or inadequacy? Maybe you don't know how to talk to a woman. Or maybe you're afraid you might not measure up. If that's the case, seek the counsel of other older godly men to help you. A Christian man should never be paralyzed by fear. Prepare to be a godly husband. Work on your character. Become financially responsible. Practice your social skills. And then pursue a wife. Pray, act, and watch God sovereignly, providentially make your actions successful. Extended singleness that is undesired is usually the result of sin in some form or another. It is not a gift from God. There is no such thing as the gift of singleness. This is a completely fabricated doctrine with no biblical foundation. At best, it serves to placate singleness and lull them into a sense of inaction when it comes to marriage. At worst, it discourages honest self-examination and undermines the confrontation of sin. And that's the real underlying purpose of that doctrine. If you're single, way past the age that you desire to be, don't let the gift of singleness teaching imprison you. Resolve that from this moment forward, you will take the preparation for and pursuit of marriage very seriously. You will no longer look to the world, Hollywood movies, love songs, and romantic novels to inform your thinking on marriage. But look to God and His revealed Word to guide you as you prepare to be a godly spouse. Use the Bible as the only correct lens to evaluate a potential spouse. Pray to the Lord about it and watch what God does. I'm in the same boat as you. I'm doing the same thing. Blessings to you, my single brothers and sisters.